0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 34. Chapter 34 and 35 uh, go together. These are kind of bookends on the first half of the book, even though we're at halfway when we get to 33. The content of the book starts to shift. In 36, we go to a historic interlude that tells about what happens to Assyria, They've been a focus of the book so far, their oppression of the people of Judah. But 34 and 35, there there is kind of a climactic point of God's address, not just now to Judah or to Assyria or to Egypt, but rather the earth, all the nations of earth. We've seen it before in Isaiah where he'll be speaking very specifically of the nations of that day that surrounded Israel, but then he would launch into a a prophecy about the whole earth, and that's what we have before us, really an epic tone. I mean, chapter 34, it's, it's reaches it's really the climax of judgment, the judgment theme that's so, uh, that runs so thoroughly through the prophets and much of Scripture. Uh, and then 35, with that picture of salvation, judgment and salvation, which we see so often, but it hasn't been this heightened yet. Uh, if you thought it was heightened before, it's the most heightened before us in the passage that we come to. Uh, I think it's true that few things awaken us from spiritual slumber, quite like a vivid reminder of the coming judgment of God Almighty. It will make a person um, who is not uh, in Christ, uh, God will use it to draw a person to Christ. Um, It will make someone who's been in Christ thankful for what they have been relieved of, how Jesus has averted the wrath of God for us. It will bring a certain sense, at least it does for me, a certain sense of terror and concern for those who don 't know Jesus, it should give us a compassion uh, and a desire to share the good news of Christ with everyone knowing what will come to pass and so I want to read just a portion of chapter thirty four though we 'll walk through the both chapters together. Uh, you can find this on page five hundred ninety four I believe it is yes five hundred ninety four in your uh, pew Bible if you don 't have another uh, version with you, your electronic version, or your own hard copy. I'll start at verse 7, reading God's holy word, chapter 34, verse 7, and I'll read to verse 17. Here now as I read. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of Vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it, He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed. There the nightbird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Lord, these are direct and even harsh chapters, especially this 34. We know by your regular refrain in the prophets and in Scripture about judgment, and also about salvation. And we know it must be important for us to regularly consider, considering how often you have it before us. We see the simplicity of your call to sinners. If we stay in our sin and trust ourselves to be saved or rescued, we will fall into a righteous judgment. But if we believe on Christ and trust in his perfect, sufficient work, we will be saved saved. Judgment and salvation. Once again, confront us. For your people, once again, give us joy about our salvation in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is amazing how often God will prove himself to us, yet we still struggle with trust. Countless times in my own life, personally and as a family, I have seen God protect me, protect us, provide for us, save us from disasters. Many times I can point to these instances in my own life, and our family's life. Yet I confess that when the next trial comes, it's sometimes tough to gain strength from what I know he has done, uh, and instead I distrust, or I try to fix it myself, or I try to find a way out or remedy the situation with my own wisdom. I know better. All the proof stacks up in God's favor of faithfulness, but I still find myself struggling against god to do it myself often it's because i've got myself into something that i think you know i didn't include god in on it when i started and so why should i go ask him for help now in my distrust it just mounts and it's it's humiliating when i think about how much god has done for me and i think this is somewhat common i hear people express this struggle too And when I read scripture and you read of of ancient days, you might be tempted to think it's so different, but it's really not. In fact, this picture we have before us matches exactly the experience God's people have had over the years. You have Judah, the choice people of God, with the temple and all the outward expressions of, of being their own people identified with God, a people who have a history that they have Shared orally and read from the scriptures all the way up to this time about God's faithfulness. Yet, when they are threatened by the Assyrians, they distrust God and they look to remedy the situation themselves. I mean, imagine the stories that you would tell if you were in Judah. I mean, you would tell of Abraham and how God supernaturally called out to Abraham, supernaturally gave he and Sarah a child at old age, way beyond childbearing years how God supernaturally intervened when he called for the sacrifice of Isaac, how God brought uh, Isaac and then brought Jacob and then brought Joseph. In all cases, we can recognize the flaws of these men, and it has to be the hand of God upon them, his grace upon them, the supernatural intervention to make these people faithful and to continue his covenantal line. And even to the point of Joseph having these gifts from God to be able to forecast a famine and save the nation by moving them to Egypt. Even taking what seems like a terrible situation, slavery in Egypt over over the decades and centuries going by, and they find themselves two million people strong, but slaves. And in the greatest picture in the Old Testament of salvation, of redemption, God opens the Red Sea after a series of supernatural plagues put upon the most Uh, powerful nation on earth, the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh. His heart is in the hand of God, and God hardens his heart, and he lets his people go, uh, parting the Red Sea miraculously, a vision nobody could ever forget. And time and time again, God shows his hand upon Judah, providing, protecting, saving. And they even get into the Promised Land, a land long occupied by the enemies of God, Uh, Their time was up and God's judgment was upon them, but they had no army strong enough to defeat them. But God gives Joshua and the armies supernatural powers so obviously from God. I mean, these, these, these victories they have are so clearly supernatural over and over. They occupy this land only by God's clear hand. And even though all of that's true, here's Judah now, shrunk down to just a space 50 miles from the north to the south, 25 miles wide. The temple's there, Jerusalem's there, the northern fortified cities are taken by the Assyrians, and still Judah stays fast in their distrust until they're brought to rock bottom, and then they cry out to God. Now we come to chapter 34, and chapter 34 is a bit of a pause. It's no longer a focus on Assyria, it's a focus on the whole earth. It's a a look up now, people, and see what God will ultimately bring. He's going to bring destruction upon Assyria, but that will be micro. That's just a foretaste of the mass destruction God will bring by his just hand, by his righteousness, with complete fairness, with no person to say, you're not fair. God will bring this. And in the face of all this distrust, it's a call to all of us to pause for a moment and know for sure that the word of God does not lie. He has kept every one of his promises. He will do exactly as he says. And he will do what he describes in chapter 34. In his time, he will do it. There will be judgment, but there will be salvation. And there will be a simple question posed at the end of this discussion, this sermon, that all of us have to answer. And make no mistake, God has never said a thing or forecasted a thing that he did not complete. And he will not stop here. So we have to recognize this truth. And that's the purpose of what we have before us. There is a very, very high price to pay for rejecting or ignoring God's word. But there's a high reward also for believing in it and applying it. Let's look together at the passages. We are transported as Franz Delitzsch, one of my favorite commentators. We are transported directly into the midst of the last things when we read chapter 34. And the eschatological vision, which means the end times vision, is less restricted, has a greater mystical depth, belongs more to another sphere, and has together a more New Testament flavor to it. It'll it'll sound a lot like Revelation to you. In fact, one cannot appreciate Revelation in its language and what it's communicating without understanding Isaiah. So much of the language is similar. And we see it especially here in chapter 34. We see God judging the rebellious nations. No longer just a focus on one or two nations, but all nations. It says in verse 1, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear in all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Clearly, this is to all the earth. So he'll use a nation's name to... Be emblematic of the nations of God of man's rebellion, but see that this is clearly a prophecy to the earth. Verse 2: For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. And here's a, a terribly vivid picture. And the stench Of their corpses shall rise. Not a passage, by the way. If I was topically forming sermons, that I would pick. Okay, one of the the reasons we do expositional preaching is so the preacher is forced to tell you what God's word says. Because this would not be one I pick. I wouldn't put it on the sign that we don't have, but the sign you know where you go by a church and they put it. This would not be it. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood and the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll this this harkens to revelation and their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree the nations hostile to jehovah will be destroyed the graphic nature of the language it can't be ignored nor could be put from our minds easily it conjures something that's very lasting In fact, it's Oswald who said that the expressions are so strong that they cannot be understood in any other sense than as relating to the end of the world. The expressions are nasty, they're graphic, but for those living in the midst of ancient warfare where they saw this kind of brutality with swords and corpses and blood flowing, it would have been a comfort for them to know that what they saw lost in their own families, in their own nation, would be righted by God in an ultimate sense someday. Verse 5, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now, it may seem odd to us that a particular nation is now singled out. Edom, a nation to the east of Israel, not very powerful in the time of Assyria's reign, not even powerful for years to come, but they are the constant thorn in the side of Israel. As soon as Israel entered the promised land, the Edomites were some of the first who confronted them. And you might remember the Edomites are descendants of Esau. And there's a particular play out of history a narrative, you might say, between Jacob and Esau. Jacob representing God's covenant people. Esau, those who rebelled against God, who are God's enemies. And it's by God's sovereign hand, make no mistake. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, it says in Romans 9. So Edom, the descendants of Esau, are emblematic of all those who are in rebellion against God. Whereas Jacob or Zion or Israel, emblematic of those who trust in God's Messiah, who trust in God for their salvation, who trust. Now, It does not matter what your ethnicity is because even the Israelites here who were Israelites by birth, unless they trusted in God's Messiah and trusted in God's salvation, they weren't true Israel. So the earth is simply divided between the true Israel and Edom. Those who rebel against God, those who trust in God, and don't trust your ethnicity for this. Only trust in God's revelation of how you may be saved. But here we come to this picture of what God will bring upon Edom, the earth, those who are in rebellion to him. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. The time will come when God, his his patience is up and it's time. The Lord has a sword, verse 6. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. This picture of the sacrifices and the completion, God's full of these things now. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. There will be no place under God's judgment where you will not recognize the hand of God's judgment. It will be evident, it will be clear, you can't look to any pleasant place when God visits. That's the picture that is being painted, is And here is the blessing. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we have opportunity to hear this, believe this, and repent. So it's a grotesque picture, but it's a merciful description of what has not yet come. So long as we can conceive the word of God and hear its appeal to sinners, there is time. Now, there's not a lot of time. We should not fool ourselves into thinking we have another day and another day, another day, another year, another decade. We don't know that. But we're here. We have time, and we're hearing it again. Verse 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance. Now, I want you to recognize something about this descriptor. In the Old Testament, when God uses these descriptions, he's not always, not always in every instance, trying to say uh, a day the way we think of a day. Sun up, sun down, that kind of thing. We see it here. The day of the Lord is descriptor of his visiting his judgment. And that's an epoch of time. Even in this passage, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. It's it's his day. It's his time. He is now having his day, you might say. And that's his period in which he exacts his judgment. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Confusion, chaos, disarray. They mark the experience of those under God's judgment. I mean, you can only escape God's judgment if you are covered. If you're not covered, you'll receive all of this. That's the point. And that's what he says to Isaiah and Judah and to the Assyrians and anyone who listened to the nations. And he says it still today and has been saying it in long suffering for these 2,800 years. Verse 9: And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Uh, pitch is like a tar, a melted substance. Sulfur, you remember, um, burned brimstone, as it said, that came down on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's that kind of a judgment. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. A descriptor of the the long-lasting, indeed, eternal punishment or judgment or destruction that comes upon those who are rebelling. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. Now he goes into the animal kingdom, and what can be confusing, uh, unless you understand, all the animals that they're mentioning are not the ones you go to Deanna Rose and pick up and pet. I mean, try to pick up a hawk. I mean, what's so great about a hawk is it doesn't let you pick it up. And that's what's so awesome about a hawk. A porcupine. I mean, don't try that. Look up dog and porcupine on Google Images. A dog and porcupine, not a cat or anything else. A a dog and porcupine. It's not a good matchup because the porcupine is built to defend and is to keep man away, to keep predators away. And these animals that occupy this space are, are roaming in their own dominion and man, because of the judgment of God, no longer can exercise dominion over the animals. No more dominion over creation. That's a major part of the punishment that comes is no ability to subdue the earth any longer and the earth does what it wants to do in this space of judgment. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. During God's judgment, confusion for his enemies will reign. And the apparent organization and well-ordered plans embodied by the strong nations and people of earth will no longer have their sway when God visits destruction upon them. In he will visit destruction upon them. In verse 12, The ultimate humbling of the kings of earth, the leaders, and the nobles. Its nobles, verse 12. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And its princes shall be nothing. The highest fear in antiquity would be a sovereign king. But that king is no longer on any kind of throne. Verse 13. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, these kingdoms. Nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. So it's not that the Assyrian king will take over this land and build his monuments and the Babylonians will destroy them and take over what was created by someone else and they'll take it over and then the Persians will do the same and the Medes will do. That won't happen anymore. They will not be occupiable when the destruction of God comes upon them and no one will take over anything else because there will be nettles, there will be thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. You would not want to be in this place, even if you could be. I have been out to the woods early in the morning many times and heard an owl screech. And it will scare the bravest of men. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed... There, the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. The point here is a loss of man's dominion in place under this punishing hand of God. Man no longer has a reprieve from God. Man's godless endeavors are finally confronted by God Himself. No exceptions and no unbeliever escapes. None. This judgment is total and final. There will be no night shows, no night talk shows for mocking unbelievers to make fun of God and make fun of Christians because they will be under ultimate destruction. How do Christians deal with such a picture of judgment? Because it is difficult, difficult to imagine. In the book of James, we read, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Very personally, studying and preaching through Isaiah makes the reality of God's wrath and judgment ever so apparent, and I'm not going to tell you I enjoy it in that respect. And I'm serious when I say I can understand why a church would pick to just do topical textual sermons. They believe the Bible, but let's just pick topics and talk about those. The problem is, being totally honest, I would not preach this passage if it were up to me. But it's not up to me. Studying and preaching Isaiah makes the reality of God's wrath and judgment so apparent And I admit that sometimes reading so much about God's wrath, it just gets to me after a while. Even a Bible teacher and a preacher, I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness on the one hand for Christ enduring God's wrath in my place when I see this. But I am also stricken. I am stricken with terror and sadness for those who have not rested upon Christ. You're a Calvinist. You just think that God... Yeah, I believe that. But that doesn't make me any less terror-filled for people who don't believe. God is sovereign, not me. I don't question who is or who isn't. I just know people will go to hell. People will suffer this destruction. And the only reason why I won't is because of the good pleasure of God and nothing to do with me. And that terrifies me when I think about that. And I read this, and it's a struggle to want to teach this to you. As I try to process the terrible anger God has towards human sin... It's true, emotions can twist my understanding and thinking. I think most error that we come to in our thinking, we read something plainly in Scripture, but our emotions, based on our experience, get in the way of what the Word says. I'm tempted to shy away from speaking of God's wrath because it's so dreadful and awful. And bottom line, I don't want to depict God as awful because my experience him is Him as of loving and gracious. That's what, that's what really defines my experience and love of God now. Yet, I come to the word, and as A.W. Pink so noted, there are more references in Scripture to the anger, the fury, and the wrath of God. You all know this just from our 34, almost 35 chapters of study in Isaiah. There are more references to his anger, his fury, and his wrath than there are to his love and tenderness. Now, his references to love and tenderness override all that wrath, for sure. And they they come to define our life and our experience with God our Father as his children— but make no mistake, the balance of Scripture is so weighted this way. Francis Schaeffer once said that if he only had an hour with someone, he would spend 50 minutes talking about the wrath of God before he gave them the way they escape. Because that's, the, that's in a sense, the ratio Scripture gives to what it depicts, in many senses. And I never want to apologize for what God's word plainly states. The truth has to be proclaimed. And here's the fact, and I know this in my own life. This is what's so ironic. I would be shy to preach about the destruction that God promises those who are not in Christ. Yet, my own experience, I can tell you absolutely, I came to Christ terrified of God's judgment. That's what it did for. I grew up in a church where I had these, these idols all around, and they were grotesque, many of them. and they were scary. And I remember looking at them just scared of God. They, they made me scared about the judgment that I knew I deserved. I was not like a friend I had recently that told me, I'm not going to believe in a God who, ha- who does this kind of judgment on people. That was not my personal experience, and I know why. It's just the grace of God. I was scared to eternal death about what was coming for me. And even as a young teenager, I remember uh, seeking the way to escape this. And I kept getting this answer of do this and do this and pray this and do this. And and maybe, hopefully, And it made me more and more terrified. I was terrified by the judgment of God that I knew was right. I didn't say, God, you shouldn't. I knew who I was in my heart. And so I remember the first time someone clearly expressed what I was coming to grasp about Christ, but clearly expressed that this is what God will do with sin because he has to. He's God. He's just and I knew that was true. And this is what God has provided so that you don't have to receive this wrath. He's provided his son in your place. Trust in him and his finished work. And that was the answer I needed. What, it dro- what drove me there? A true depiction of what was coming for me if I did not trust in Christ. Why would I be afraid to share that with people? I think the problem is in America we're so spiritual that we have crafted a, a, a fake world of spirituality that's comfortable, that's, that's, fluffy, that's It's all this stuff that keeps us from realizing what's really to come. So we don't have to rest upon Christ. We rest upon our religiosity or our good works or how I'm better than that person. And we do it all the way to destruction. What a tool of the devil. It's ingenious. It's easier to talk to an atheist about it than someone who's religious. As I preach through Isaiah more and more, Of God's judgment is expressed and forecasted. And I know that many unbelievers scoff at what they see as a vengeful God. And a preacher can be tempted to preach only the softer side of God, if you will. Just talk about Him loving people. Uh, God is love, Jesus is love, God is kind, Jesus is compassionate. These are true. But what do God's love, kindness, and grace mean if they're not, if we are not exposed to the whole truth about our sin? God's righteousness and our future judgment, apart from the faith, faith in the work of Christ, to remove the wrath of God is a terrible thing. Only telling part of the truth is a lie, and in this case it's a damning one. I think that what makes this so hard when we think of the wrath and anger of God for the, uh, in his judgment It's so difficult, at least for me, because I struggle to comprehend wrath or anger apart from my experience of these. And my experience is a sinful experience of these. I don't have righteous wrath or anger. Even in times where you might describe it as righteous, I get mad about this or that injustice, there's still a little, there's an admixture of my own personal um, vengeance mixed in, which makes it sinful. It's very difficult for us to experience godly wrath and anger. But God never struggles with this. He is God. God's wrath is not like my wrath or your wrath. His wrath is always right and it's always pure. And in balance with the whole message of God's glorious gospel, people need to know the truth about God's just wrath and judgment. It will make the yet unredeemed but elect sinners run to Jesus and cause redeemed ones to cry out to God with thanksgiving for the salvation they had through Christ, and it will prompt us to want to share that with everybody. And that's right. And that's by design. Verse 16 and verse 17 in, verse 30, in chapter 34 forms a swift transition into what comes in chapter 35, but I don't want you to miss it. A shorter point, but one I wanted to, wanted to extract so you see it. Look what it says. After giving this terrible picture of judgment, Seek, verse 16, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. So what's the remedy? Where do you go? Where do you find out how it is that we escape this wrath to come? The chapter ends and builds into the picture of salvation. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He, God, will Bring about whatever he says he will bring about. He will fulfill any promise he makes. He always has. You can never point to a time when God said, I will do this, and he didn't do it. So if you want to know what is in the future, this is it. This is the awful picture in its complete, complete terribleness. What do I do? Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Only those who do not read it will be surprised. But here's the problem. There are a great many people who will not read. Now, I understand that we cannot make anybody pick up the Bible and believe it. Only God can do that. But what Christians can do, what the church can do, we can so treasure the Word of God. We can handle it so carefully, so mindfully, that that clear devotion to the revealed will of God, the Word of God, will express itself to a watching world, to other believers who haven't read it or don't know of its totality or only pick out, and we're famous for this, just certain verses that we harangue as Christians rather than people of the whole counsel of God. If we cherish the Word of God like this, we would have more standing in the wider world. I don't mean complete standing, and there will always be enemies to God, but I think we'd have more than we have. I think most of our people go from this place I don't mean you personally, or I'm not speaking of some other church. Just Christians in general, especially in America. They don't know the word in totality. They know portions of it that they grab hold of when there are problems. or And they're true, but they are not the full counsel of God. It doesn't display a people that really understand what God has revealed. You can't just walk up to a Christian and ask him detailed questions about the word because they don't necessarily know it that well. And where you really see this is in academics, especially in college. It happens in high school now, too but definitely in college, where you'll have a professor stand in front of a class, this professor of all knowledge and PhD in multiple disciplines and so forth, and, and the professor will make a passing statement about the Bible, that it's, it's a book of fairy tales, it's, there are myths in it, um, it's devolved, and uh, there are errors in it, there are contradictions in it. They don't know anything about it that's not part of their discipline, but they rattle that off. They, it starts in grade school, and goes into high school, and it gets rattled off, rattle off, and people believe it. Now, I hope our children in those places don't believe that. Now, it'd be tough if that's what they hear always, and their professor, who's their authority, keeps saying it, and they're smart, and they don't get a chance to express it. But what about someone who might be seeking, and they hear that constantly, they just don't ever know, they would never think of picking up the Bible to read answers. So the challenge for us is to be so in love with the word, not jerks about the word, but so in love with the word that it just, it infiltrates all of our life so that when someone sees us, they're like, that is a person of the Bible. The Bible must not be the book of fairy tales that my professor said it is when I see so and so clinging to it and it looks so beautiful in their life. And if we would be more about our love for the word like this, then I think we would have more opportunity to say to people who recognize things are bad in the world and Recognize there is a message about some judgment that's coming. Many people know that. For them to be able to say, or for you to say to them, seek and read from the book, we'd have more of a chance for that if we just were more people of the word than we currently are. Ray Ortland says in a sermon on this passage, you can choose not to live by faith in God. And he's saying this humanly speaking. But you cannot choose to evade the consequences. We need God's word to reveal the way of escape. And verse 35 is a celebration of those who find themselves under God's protective care, ultimately through Christ as we see it revealed as it plays out in Scripture. And this is a glorious picture of the rejoicing. As God brings his judgment simultaneously uh, during the day of the Lord, this year of recompense, or however long it actually is, we don't know, the time of his judgment as he's doing this thing, at the same time, Christ is ushering in the new heavens and the new earth in his final judgment. Verse 1 of chapter 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The de- the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. So from all this picture of destruction, we shift to a regeneration picture, a rejuvenation picture. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So God is building the new heavens and the new earth as he destroys the old one and he brings under judgment those who are rebelling against him, those who are in him, he now brings about a new earth for. Franz Dalich says those who have become weak in faith, hopeless and despairing, are to cheer up. And the stronger are to tell such to their brethren as are perplexed and timid to be comforted now because Jehovah is coming. The wholesale total worship of God can commence as his enemies are being subdued. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. There is an immediate fulfillment for those hearing that the first time. And that's true for all of us. But there is a not yet, but still to come, ultimate consummation of these things that we await. And what is described next sounds an awful lot like the first coming of Christ, to the advent of Jesus. And it is about this. When Jesus comes and visits the earth, he will bring these things. But he only brings them in part the first time. His first coming was for redemption. But he comes, and as Messiah King, he's able to bring some of these features of what the finalized kingdom looks like. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the lame, then shall the lame man leap like a deer... And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see this picture of regeneration and rejuvenation? Eyes being opened, ears unstopped. Jesus comes as the king, and his kingdom begins, if you will, when he comes. And he does these things, but only in part because the future fulfillment of it all is yet to come in totality. Verse 7, The burning sand shall become a pool, In the thirsty ground, springs of water. All this desolation now yields what we need. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. A very opposite picture of what we saw in judgment. And this is a beautiful picture of what will be given to us as safety. Keep in mind highways and transition points in uh, roads. These were dangerous places where militaries moved, where robbers uh, uh, lay in wait. And you never knew if you were safe on highways, but this is a picture now of a completely secure highway, the road to Zion, the road to God's consummated kingdom. And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. And this isn't the same way Proverbs uses fools. Usually fools is meant to spiritually insensitive. This just means people aren't that smart. Even people aren't that smart, We'll get what's going on. And just so you know, I'm not making it up. Franz Dalich, much smarter than I, wrote a great commentary. Listen to how he puts it. None but the church purified and sanctified through sufferings and those connected with it will be on this road. To them and them alone does this road belong, which Jehovah has made and secured and which so readily strikes the eye that even an idiot couldn't miss it. That's what Dalich says about it. Delivered and set free from captivity and affliction. Verse 9. No lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. You're totally safe, totally secure now, utterly protected, completely provided for. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. We won't have to run because nothing's chasing us anymore. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I hope you feel the comfort in the words here spoken. But imagine what our North Korean brothers and sisters must feel when they read this. Imagine what a Christian in Syria feels when they read this. Imagine what a Christian in the Sudan feels like when they read this. They can read this in all their suffering, in all their loss, and they could say, the ransom of the Lord will eventually return. They will come to Zion with singing in everlasting joy, something they can never conceive of right now. But everlasting joy will come. It will be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing. All they do is sorrow and sigh. But now that sorrow and that sighing will be gone. The road to Zion is the road to the finally redeemed. And we all have it to look forward to. A word of consolation for sure. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see here in chapter 34 and 35 something we have seen before and we'll see again. It is a tale of two people. In chapter 34, it shows those who ignore or reject God's revelation and stay in their rebellion against him and become then the subjects of God's awful but just and right wrath. No one can issue a complaint. Chapter 35 shows those who seek Read and believe in God's word. They are provided full redemption and safe passage to the heavenly Zion in God's glory and delight forevermore. The question that I pose to you is absolutely the question that God wants me to ask. Which person are you? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we have heard a heavy word, but it's your word, and so we trust it and we know it to be true. Lord, I pray that you would comfort your redeemed, that we would be overwhelmed with thankfulness for what Jesus has done in taking your just wrath upon him in our stead. But Lord, at the same time, make us weep for those who do not know you and be compelled to share Christ in all ways that we can possibly share him. Lord, if there's somebody who is scared by what they have heard, I pray that you would Work faith in them to lay hold of Jesus and be scared no more. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing a song that's a celebration of God's faithfulness to God's saints over the years. And I think it's fitting for um, a passage like this. For all the saints will stand and sing verses 1 through 3 of 358.